I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Hey folks, welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Today, I have a very special guest on the show, Andrew Solomon. Andrew Solomon is a writer, a lecturer on psychology, politics, the arts. He's a winner of the National Book Award. He's an activist in the LGBT rights, mental health, uh, and, and the arts. He's a really just, uh, his his books, his most recent one, I think, was uh, Far and Away. Uh, his, prior to that, Far from the Tree, A Stone Boat was a, a revelatory book for me. Uh, Far from the Tree actually has an adaptation as well on Netflix, and we chatted uh, a little bit about that. It's a really powerful um, uh, a watch, so I, I suggest that you go go check that out. Uh, his TED Talks, you might might be familiar with his uber-popular TED Talks as well. Uh, he's done a few of them on the big TED the uh, stage, Love No Matter What, uh, Depression, the, she- the Secret We Share. I've shared that one myself repeatedly. Uh, and the one that I think I really connected with the most, How the Worst Moments in Our Lives Make Us Who We Are. So go check out his, his TED Talks for sure. Andrew Solomon's been somebody that I've been wanting to talk to for ages. So I went down to New York. We recorded at his, he was so gracious to invite me into his home. And we recorded at his home to have a conversation about not only how his uh, beliefs have developed and and kind of an overview of some of the things that he's written about in the past, especially in, in Far From the Tree. We focused a lot on that. Um, but but his own psychology, his own mental health, uh, and how he's been able to navigate that and, and do the incredible things that he has done. So it's a, a real honor, a privilege uh, for me to be able to speak to one of my, uh, you know, one of, one of my white whales uh, of people that I wanted to interview for this show, uh, the writer Andrew Solomon on So-Called Normal. Here we are chatting. I'm Andrew Solomon. I'm 55 years old. I'm gay and married to my husband. Um, We have an unusual family structure in that he is the biological father of two children with some lesbian friends in Minnesota. And my best friend from college had gotten divorced and wanted to have a child. And so she and I decided to have a baby who uh, is now 12 years old and lives in Texas uh, with her mother, but visits frequently. And then John and I wanted a child full time. So we have George, of whom he is the adoptive father. I am the biological father. We had an egg donor, and our surrogate was Laura, the lesbian mother of his two biological children. I'm a writer. Uh, I've written a book about depression. Mm-hmm. Um, I've written a book about families and how they respond to having children who are different from them in some ways. I've become involved in the disability rights movement. Uh, I suffered from severe depression myself. Mm-hmm. Um, the quest to ensure that people who have depression are identifying it and are getting appropriate help has become a driving force in my life. So where did this, uh, you know, you, you, you've talked about your early years a lot. It seems like there's not much out there that you haven't talked about in terms of your life. <laughs> Sometimes You'd it, be surprised. <laughs> so where, you know, you, you, let's start with your, um, you know, your, your coming out story, which you've told in a number of different media that you didn't feel uh, certainly accepted or that it was okay. And, and in fact, you talked quite often about uh, trying to change yourself when you're a young man. Yes, I think I always had the sense that while I was successful in a variety of ways, um, uh, that my being gay was a terrible deficit, mm-hmm. that it would be a hideous disappointment to my parents. I was afraid of disappointing them. We had a very close and positive relationship. I was shiny in lots of other ways. So I came out sort of gradually. You know, some people have a day when they came out and they came out to everyone and it was a sort of big explosion. Mm-hmm. And I instead came out by little uh, dribs and drabs to my closest friends and then to some other friends and then bit by bit and eventually to my family. And how did people react to that? Was it kind of a, oh yeah, we all knew that and you're just finding it out type thing? Or was it uh, shock that, that you were gay? I don't think anybody was shocked except my parents. Really? Um, really? And, uh, and I think they had been in a kind of denial. And... They had always known that I was odd and eccentric and had my own way of doing things and my own way of being in the world. Um, But they were devastated to learn Mm -hmm. that I was gay and they were angry about it too. Mm -hmm. 
I had tried very hard not to be gay because I felt that I had to make what seemed to me a catastrophic choice between having a family, which was the thing I most wanted in the world, and living a life of honesty and integrity. Mm -hmm. And I spent years trying to figure out whether I could pull off being heterosexual because I wanted a family and because at the time my perception was that gay people couldn't have families. Right. As I've just said in explaining who I am, in the end, the family thing and the gay thing worked out together. Um, uh, While I was busy wishing I weren't gay, uh, the world was changing around me and it began to be possible for gay people to have families. Yeah, You you said in one of your TED Talks that you had tried very hard uh, surrogacy, sexual surrogacy therapy, if, if you could call it therapy. Was that around the same time as the whole conversion therapy movement where people were trying to change people in that way? What? I wasn't sent to conversion therapy by my family, as right. so many people who are sent to religious conversion therapy were. But I, in my quest to have children, in my quest to be normal, in my quest not to be a disappointment to my family, right. signed up myself for surrogacy therapy. I had read an ad for it in the back of New York Magazine. Right. I was smart enough to know that you don't really find a therapist through ads in the back of New York Magazine, (laughs) but I nonetheless went off and had this um, sort of therapy with Mm. people I was encouraged to call doctors um, in an office on um, West, I think it was 46th or 47th Street. And I remember for months and months going up once a week and being put through sexual exercises with these women I was encouraged to call surrogates. Um, And uh, I was trying to get over the fear and anxiety that I had around trying to have sex with a woman. Mm. And it was partially successful. I later went on and had a number of fulfilling sexual relationships with women and, you know, felt that I I broadened the spectrum of what was available to me through Mm. going through that therapy. But it didn't change who I fundamentally was. And in retrospect, it's clear to me that it was an exercise in extreme self-hatred and Mm. one that ultimately was very damaging. And it makes me highly sympathetic to people who have been put through conversion therapies of any kind. You go through the conversion therapy because you can't bear who you are. And that's a a tragedy. You had a, so it sounds like you had a sense then that you were either, or did you know that you were gay at that time? Yes. I don't know that I had entirely accepted that label, but yes, essentially I knew I was gay from quite an early age. And what about depressed? When did you come out as realizing you had depression? Well, I had depression when I was in my early 30s. Um, Mm. It was a few years after my mother died, which was the great trauma of my uh, earlier life, and I think related to it. Um, It was when I was publishing a novel, A Stone Boat, that was loosely based on the period of my mother's illness and death. Also, in writing a novel that had strong gay themes, I was coming out to much of the world. There were a variety of triggers that Mm. um, led to it. Uh, But in terms of coming out about it, I felt after it had happened that I had spent many years being in a closet. I had been in the Mm. closet as a gay person, and I had finally managed to come out. And I was determined that I was never going to be in a closet again. And Mm. so when I had depression... I was very open about it, and I talked about it very directly. And fairly soon after I emerged from it, I wrote an article for The New Yorker about my experience with depression. Mm -hmm. And I think that decision to be uncloseted and to be very public and open was entirely drawn from the trauma that being closeted as a gay person had occasioned. Sure. And how was that received when you wrote that article? The article was very warmly received. Um, I got actually thousands of letters in the month that it came out from people writing to me to tell me about their experiences with depression. I always remember being in the um, corridors of The New Yorker soon after it had come out, and I was talking to another New Yorker writer, and Tina Brown, who was then the editor, came down the hallway, and she stopped in front of us, and she turned to the other writer, and she said, Janet, have you read Andrew's piece? And Janet said, oh, I cried. (laughs) And Tina Brown said, everyone is crying. I'm terribly pleased. (laughs) (laughs) So I I had um, read Far From the Tree when it first came out a couple of years ago, but I just watched uh, the Netflix document or the Netflix adaptation of it uh, on the flight in. And I think I cried so much I got dehydrated. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Can I get you a glass of water? No, but it was great. It was it was it was such a a powerful um, way to tell that story as well. So, you know, and I, I think that we've changed 
so much. You know, is, is there anything left that we haven't or, or that we haven't really cracked the nut on that we haven't that we still can't really talk about? Do you think? Well, I think in terms of being open about being gay, that there's now a section of society within which it's very easy to come out, or mm-hmm. relatively easy at least to come out. And there's still a very large section of society in which it isn't. And I never forget how different my experience of having a husband and children is from the experience um, of many people who are gay in right. rural areas, in more conservative parts of the country, in extremely um, evangelical families, in all kinds of other situations. And yesterday at the Supreme Court, arguments were heard about whether employment rights should be protected for gay people. And, uh, you know, the likelihood is, given the conservative makeup of the Supreme Court, that they won't be. So Mm -hmm. in more than half the states in the country, you can still be fired for being gay. You're Mm -hmm. allowed to get married, but once you do get married, your employer is allowed to fire you for being gay. So... I'm very aware that this luxury of openness that I enjoy is restricted by location and by class and by background and by all kinds of other things. It's gotten much better for some people, but it's even more bifurcated than it used to be. I've been thinking about this a lot lately anyway, but so it's, I guess, no surprise to me that it came up while I was um, preparing to talk to you. How do you inspire hope in somebody who hasn't felt that before. You know, you've made it through to the other side, whatever that means to you. Uh, but for somebody who just can't see that, who's still in the in the depths of the despair that you once were, uh, how, do you, how do you convince them uh, that there is another side? Well, the first thing is to be really honest in describing how bad it was in the first place. Right. I mean, when I was in my depression, I was catatonic for a while. I was um, unable to talk at one point. I was... Um, uh, Uh, in bed for a period of several months. Um, I was um, uh, suicidal. You know, a lot of the time people see that you seem to be all right now and assume that you were always all right. Mm. And it's important to be honest about the fact that you weren't always all right. Mm. So that's number one. I get get that sometimes too. It's that, you know, you... um you were one of the lucky ones. Yeah, but you don't realize how bad it was. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, I think we were the lucky ones. Here we sure. are sitting and having this conversation. There are people who descend into that kind of despair and don't have any return from it. Right. The second thing is to say to people that depression is a very terrible but also a very treatable condition and that it's very important to seek treatment. And it's important to keep seeking treatment until you find good treatment. That mm. the fact that you went to one doctor and you didn't get better doesn't mean that you can never get better. Right. Turns out there's a lot of bad doctors out there. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Or just ones that aren't a good fit. There are a shocking number of, I think, incompetent doctors out there. And I can't tell you how often even now I get letters from people describing the treatment they're on. And I think to myself, but if you had such a deactivated depression, those are drugs that are going to make you even groggier and slower. Why are you on those particular drugs? I mean, I'm not a physician and I'm not qualified to prescribe medications, but uh, I wonder I often that write too. back to yeah. people and say, you know, you might want to see another doctor and you might want to make the following points about right. the nature of your depression. So I think there are a lot of people who are not getting appropriate care. Um, there are a lot of people who are not getting care at all. There are a lot of people who don't know that there is care available to them. Mm. But I also find that one of the things that fascinated me was why some people had what sounded, as they described it, like relatively minor depression, but were nonetheless completely disabled by it. And some people had more significant depression and were able, at least in the interstices between their depressive episodes, to find meaning in their lives and to do things that were positive and uh, profound. And I ultimately felt that a lot of it had to do with whether you were able to incorporate the narrative of depression into your life story. Mm -hmm. I mean, depression is cyclical. Most people who've had a depression will have another one. Almost all people who've had more than two or three depressions will go on cycling in and out of it without treatment. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have to figure out how to have a narrative of your life that includes those experiences so that when the depression rears its ugly head again, Mm -hmm. you're prepared for it and you're able to deal with it. I had now, almost two years ago, a really significant relapse despite being on medication, despite having wonderful treatment, despite having a life that in many ways has worked out very nicely. And I had almost a year where I was depressed again, not as badly depressed as I was in the first episode, but where I was depressed again. And I finally made some significant changes in my medications and I came out of it. Um, 
it was horrible. I mean, I feel I've learned a lot from the depressions I had in the past, and I would like not have any more in the future. Right. Um, so, but sometimes people, you know, I, I experienced this in the advocacy community as well, uh, and and you've talked and written about this. Um, develop an identity, uh, I think, around their mental illness, as other people do with other kinds of disabilities or or differences. Um, and sometimes that can help, I guess, to help you make sense of it. But sometimes I've seen it hold people back, too, that they can't break free of that identity of the, the depressed person. Well, look, if there weren't positive things achieved through forming that identity, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. It's right. obviously become central to your identity. And I've made a wonderful career out of being depressed. Exactly. <laughs> it's all I know how to do. So indeed have I. Um, I think that there are people whose self whose self-image shifts in a profoundly negative way and mm. who feel all the time as though they're trapped by their depression and as though it's their dominant reality. Mm. What I think is important is to integrate it into a larger dominant reality and be honest about the fact that you're depressed sometimes and not allow it to take over so that you're, um, uh, it's your sole identity. It right. should be one of many sort of strings to your bow. Right. You've talked about this idea of, of uh, forging meaning. Uh, and this was something that fundamentally changed how I used to uh, view this. I used to talk to people all the time about what helped me when I was most suicidal was finding meaning, was finding something to do with my life, mental health advocacy, talking, you know, sharing stories, hearing stories from people. Um, but then when I heard about this idea of, and it almost helped me to give myself more credit for this idea of building meaning, forging meaning, even if you can't find it out there, that was a fundamental shift for me. Can you talk to me more about the difference between finding and forging meaning? I think a lot of people have said over a long period of time that the way that you get through a struggle with mental illness of any kind is by finding meaning in it. And I always felt that that suggested that the meaning was sort of sitting out there, right, like on the side of the road. rock on the beach, exactly. <laughs> yeah, waiting for you. And it was waiting for you to find it. And over time, I came to think that meaning isn't something that's just out there waiting to be found. It's something that you create. And the process of creating meaning is a challenging and a very intense process. And you can't do it when you're at your most depressed. And I would never want people who are in the throes of horrible depression to think now, in addition to everything else, I'm supposed to be forging meaning right. out of this. Find the meaning of life. But, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but as you come out of your depression, mm -hmm. or as your depression ameliorates and you at least partially emerge from it, there's time to think, okay, I would never have chosen that experience and I wish I hadn't had it. Mm -hmm. But given that I did have it, am I going to be able to turn it into um, something that had some value for me. And most of the people I've talked to who have had major depression, you know, well, they wouldn't have chosen it and don't feel so great about having had it, mm -hmm. say, it made me more humane. It gave me insight into how profound feelings should be. It altered my sense that life could be experienced rationally. Mm -hmm. It allowed me to be more empathetic with other people. It gave me insight into people who were driven by mental illness toward criminal acts and made me better able to tolerate the evil in the world. People talk about all of these profound transformations that have come through their experience of mental illness. It gave me humility where I had not previously had it. And if you can look at those and say, okay, they have some value, then you can construct a story of your life in which you don't say, I had two years of being terribly depressed and they should never have happened and they had no purpose whatsoever and instead have a sort of through narrative of your life that says that's not what I would have chosen but it strengthened me. Mm -hmm. I mean I think in connection with another book I wrote about the interviews that were done with women who had had children with a variety of deficits and so-called defects and the women were interviewed shortly after their children were born and asked do you expect to find meaning in this experience mm -hmm. and then they were re-interviewed um, five years later and the women who had expected to find meaning in the experience had children who were doing better on every possible clinical measure than the parents of children who had not. Um, uh, uh, the parents had not expected to find meaning in the experience. So finding meaning in the experience affects everyone in the penumbra of the mental illness you have right. and the suffering that you're going through. And, and do you think people have access to that same depth of meaning had they not struggled with those things? If we eradicated those struggles? You know, I think that the quest for meaning would have been very different and that people wouldn't have been driven to it. I think if I hadn't had the depression that I had, mm -hmm. that I wouldn't have engaged in the particular creative work that I've engaged in, and maybe whatever I did would have been less profound than what I did. Mm -hmm. As I say, that doesn't mean that I think it's wonderful to have had depressions sure. and everyone should have one, and you know, you'll feel really great if you can only go through a depression and come out the other side. 
But I think you take what's given to you and you make a decision. I mean, again, looking at parents of disabled children, which I did in a later book that I wrote, one mother said to me, one mother of two children with very severe multiple disabilities said, um, people always give us these little sayings like, God doesn't give you any more than you can handle. But children like ours are not preordained as a choice. They're a choice because that's what we have chosen. Mm -hmm. And I think likewise, there is a choice, not while you're in the depths of depression, but as you emerge from it, am I going to position this as something where I found meaning, or am I going to just turn my back on it and try to pretend it never happened? Mm. And closing yourself off to that past experience and saying, that's behind me, I'll never think about it again, leaves you curiously more vulnerable to it. Because when mm. it ambushes you once more, and depression is almost always cyclical, as I said, when it ambushes you once more, you're very unprepared for it. Well, if you've managed to find some or forge some kind of meaning in it, if you've managed to say, there's something in it that strengthened me or helped me to grow, you're much better prepared for its inevitable recurrence. Mm. You said your son is 12 now? Uh, no, your daughter is 12, your daughter, my son is 10. Your son is 10. Well, still almost teenagers. Um, ah! Well, <laughs> well, speaking of meaning and identity formation, right? Well, how have you grappled with this in your own mind of, especially if they have some shared genetic material, uh, are they going to be able to find meaning, the meaning that you have in the same way uh, if they don't have the same kinds of struggles and experiences? Well, look, it's my terror that my children are going to suffer from depression and that I will have passed that along. Mm -hmm. I think I have many good qualities that I hope I've passed along, and that's the one that I most hope I haven't passed mm -hmm. along. Um, but if even I, despite the gifts you took from it. Even despite the gifts right. I took from it. I would like to protect my children from that suffering. But if I have passed uh, the depression along to my children, I think I'll be well equipped to say to them, this is how you cope with it. And how you cope with it is that you see a doctor and seek therapy immediately, that you go on medication if you need to go on medication and don't get wrapped up in the idea that somehow going on medication is a loss of your essential identity and mm. that it's like losing your virginity and there's no going back and once you do it, you'll never be the same. I mean, none of that mm. stuff, I hope, will, um, uh, will obtain. Um, and then I think I'd say to them, you know, this is an unbelievably painful experience, but it's a temporary experience. And often people choose suicide, which is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And it's important not to head in that direction. And it's important to have the capacity to be patient. And you say it to people. One of the symptoms of depression is the feeling that it will be like this forever. Right. The reality, which we know from clinical practice, is that in almost all cases, not all cases, but almost all cases, that's not true. And if you can bear it and you can manage to be brave in the face of it, there's promise and good stuff on the other mm -hmm. side of it. Often I, I find that people will say that they've tried everything. When if really you look at the case, there's a lot of things that they haven't tried or that they've been bounced around uh, and messed up by a system that doesn't serve them, that isn't designed to help them or care for them. So in many ways, they're victims uh, of, a, of an inadequate system. Yes, I'm constantly hearing from people about that. I mean, I think there are people who have depression, which is exacerbated by their social circumstances. Mm -hmm. I get letters from people who spend their entire lives isolated from other human beings. They get up in the morning, they eat something, they head off to a job where they're in front of a machine all day, either in factory labor or in front of a computer. They leave, they pick up food on the way home, they eat it while they're watching television, they go to bed and they get up the next day and repeat. They're mm. very isolated and very socially cut off. People often ask me what the signifiers are for resilience, and I feel like one of the signifiers for resilience is having human connections mm. around you. And I don't think that it's so easy to say to people who don't have any human connections, you know, if you only had a lot of people who loved you, you'd feel better. Mm. Um, but I do think it's important when you're not depressed to build human relationships that will endure when you are depressed, especially if you've been depressed before and you think you'll get depressed again, um, to try to establish relationships with some people, mm. even if they're doctors, but also if they're family members or if they're friends, and say, this is what I've been through, and I might go through it again, and mm. if I do, I hope I can count on you. For loved ones, parents, spouses, anybody else who's lost somebody close to them to suicide, how do they forge meaning out of what happened to them? Well, look, losing someone to suicide is 
possibly the most painful experience available to human beings. Um, I mean, it's awful to lose anyone you love and have them die at all. But suicides always have a penumbra of guilt around them. My college roommate, who was a friend, not an unbelievably close friend, but a good friend, committed suicide uh, 10 years ago last week. And uh, I still feel devastated by it. And I still feel devastated by having gone back and reread the emails and messages and letters we had exchanged and thinking there were clues there and I missed them. And now that he's dead, I can see what the clues were. And I wish I'd understood them better and gotten on a plane and gone to help him. So there's always that sadness. And when it's a close family member, especially when it's a child, but when it's anyone that you feel very close to and very attached to, I think the damage is permanent, and I don't think that you can just sort of say, well, I'll find meaning in it, and then mm -hmm. I'll feel okay. Mm -hmm. That being said, some people respond with enormous anger, and they try to, I don't know, sue the school their child went to, or to attack the people who were unkind on social media, or whatever else seems to be the proximate cause. And other people say, how can I help to make sure this doesn't happen to anyone else? And I always think of the Jed Foundation that was founded by Phil and Donna Setow, whose son had killed himself. Um, it now uh, provides mental health services and ranks the existing mental health services at universities across the United States and now in many high schools as well. Mm -hmm. And I remember talking to Donna Setow and saying, why did you choose to set up this foundation? And she said, Jed killed himself because he thought his life had no meaning, and I want to make sure that his death does have some meaning. Mm. Wow. You must have heard from so many people over the years of the, the public work that you've been doing now for, it sounds like, virtually your entire career, uh, speaking about challenging issues, right, that nobody else seems to want to talk about. So you must hear those kinds of stories all the time from people who are who are impacted by the types of things that you're working on. How do you, you know, does this, do these stories still affect you going into these communities, learning about uh, these disorders, disabilities, um, tragedies uh, very often? How do, how do they, how do you let that stuff go, I guess, <laughs> is what I'm wondering. Well, the stories of tragedies are terribly difficult to let go, and they haunt me. Um, but that being said, there are also stories of great triumph um, and great joy, and there are stories of people who've managed to pull through. Mm -hmm. I think the reason I'm able to tolerate the terrible stories I hear is that I believe, rightly or wrongly, that I may help people either to process what's already happened or to um, avoid having something like that happen in their own lives and their own histories. Um, so that piece of it is very gratifying. Um, but I also have acquired a sense that I never had before of how lonely people are, of how many people feel they can't talk about the most profound experiences they're having. And um, I think, uh, you know, you don't have to be as open as I've been and broadcast the story of your nervous breakdowns across um, a multiplicity of media. But I think if you're able to learn to be at least a little bit open, that that openness ultimately serves a redemptive purpose. And I think if I've helped people with nothing else, I've helped them to talk honestly and openly about their experience. One of the things I've uh, that really motivated to do this me to do this podcast was... I felt like we've been talking about mental health and mental illness now for, you know, in a really meaningful and earnest way for about 10 years, not that long uh, in the way that we currently have. But I was getting tired of always only talking about a very surface level diagnosis, uh, uh, medication kind of um, conversation. I wanted to go a little bit deeper into these conversations of resilience. A little bit of the pushback, though, that I've received on that is that it's almost silver lining uh, the struggle in some ways, or that it's, that it's, uh, uh, you know, my, I, I've told people before the stories of recovery and resilience are actually way more common than stories of struggle, uh, but they don't get the kind of the same kind of attention because they're not as sensational. So how do we actually emphasize these stories of, uh, resilience of recovery of forging meaning of, of all these good stories, uh, while still validating the struggle? In the first place, I think of the gay activist Harvey Milk, Someone said to him, um, what is the younger activist, what is the best thing I can do for the movement? And he said, go out and tell someone. Mm. And there has been much greater openness about mental illness in recent years. There's been openness from celebrities. There's been openness from people writing memoirs. There's been openness from people talking to their friends and their peer groups. And I think the more openness we have, the more likely we are to be able to get a handle on the situation and to locate those stories of 
hope and redemption and to talk about the ways in which they have functioned. Beyond that, I think we live in a time when our ability to intervene for people with depression is much greater than it ever used to be. I mean, we have much better medications. They're still crude and primitive, but they're much better than they were. We have more effective forms of talk therapy. You know, I don't think cognitive behavioral is the only answer, but it's one of many answers and it has a proven track record. We have alternative treatments that some people have found extremely useful. We have much more you can do about it. So mm -hmm. if you came out and said, I'm really depressed in 1940, people would have said, I'm so sorry, perhaps. They probably there wouldn't was, say that. They probably wouldn't have said that, exactly. <laughs> um, but there was nothing very much that could be done. Right. And now we live in a different era in which there's a great deal that can be done, and there's a great mm -hmm. deal that can be achieved and accomplished to, um, to help people to safety. Mm -hmm. And... So I, I grew up in a, a small town where I think the response was largely, well, who isn't right. when I said I was depressed? Yes. Every, it's life is hard, right? We're Irish Catholic. Well, life yeah, is hard. Right. <laughs> but that actually you point to one of the other difficulties, which is that it's a real poverty of our vocabulary that we use mm. the same word depressed mm. to describe how, you know, a kid feels when his baseball game is rained out and to describe how someone feels seconds before jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm. And we don't, I mean, people say, clinical depression or they have these other kind of modifying words but essentially we call it all depression right so if you said to somebody you know i've realized i'm schizophrenic and i have strange delusions all the time people don't say well we're all kind of schizophrenic you know right. they recognize you have an extreme illness and they're troubled by it possibly terrified by it possibly unhelpful about it but at least they recognize that it's a serious situation mm -hmm. but people say they're depressed and people say well i get depressed all the time too and i just find you know i balance my diet and i get some more sleep and then i'm fine right and you have to be able to say no no the depression i have is much more severe than that and is actually a different condition even mm -hmm. though we use the same mm -hmm. word for it. So but, how do you qualify the difference then between depression and sadness that everybody knows or even intense sadness that people know? Well in the first place I think that the um, opposite of depression is not happiness but vitality and that when you're depressed it's not that you feel sad all the time it's that you feel paralyzed and unable to do things and emotionally deadened and disconnected and all kinds of other things that are not really sadness, though mm -hmm. sadness may be a feature of it and small things may uh, push you into a state of extreme sadness. Right. And feeling it, dead inside can make you feel sad too, it turns out. And yes, yeah. I was going to say. <laughs> um, I mean, I feel like... Uh, when you're depressed, you're overwhelmed by the ordinary business of daily life. So I feel like when I was depressed, I felt incredibly sad about having to take a shower. I felt incredibly overwhelmed about the idea of making myself some lunch. I felt uh, terrified by the idea of having to go out and interact with other people. And at the moment, when I happen not to be depressed, I feel like I'm overwhelmed by the problem of global warming. And mm -hmm. I'm angry about the income inequality that persists in the United States. And I'm horrified by the things that are going down in the Trump administration. And I feel like I'm um, devastated by the fact that somebody I love very much died fairly recently. Um, and the sense constantly of feeling... Uh, sad is associated, sad and even desolate is associated with things that actually warrant it. Mm -hmm. In depression, you know, in some ways it's an illness of self-obsession and you're overwhelmed a lot of the time by smaller things. And furthermore, you feel like you can't do anything about those right. things. You don't go on climate marches when you're depressed. You're lying at home with the covers pulled up over your head. Right. So it's not that I feel like now that I'm not depressed, I just think life is wonderful and I sort of trot down the street like a sunflower. Right. It's that I'm able to be depressed about things that warrant being depressed about in the sort of popular sense of depressed. And I'm no longer depressed in that clinical sense right. in which everything seems terrible to me. Uh, I'm going to ask you about how you cope in a second, but how hard should one push oneself? Uh, you know, you said if, if you're anxious about climate change, getting out to a march, but, if, you know, and, and that can help to give you something to do with that feeling. But how hard should you push yourself to overcome your nature or inclination or whatever it is versus rest or letting it uh, happen or, or waiting, 
you know, on those two, that active versus passive approach to countering your feelings when you're depressed? When you're feeling well enough to take an active approach, and at the real apotheosis of a severe depression, you may well not be, but right. when you're feeling well enough to move forward, you know, I think antidepressants help those who help themselves. Mm. And um, uh, that the medication and the psychotherapy will do some of the work and that you have to do some of the work directly yourself as well. Um, you have to do the work of finding the doctors who can help you. You have to do the work of agreeing to whatever the treatment is, even if it's something frightening like electroconvulsive therapy. Um, you have to do the work of moving forward. On the other hand, sometimes there's a limit to how much you can do. Right. I mean, a friend of mine just said to me, we were talking about this, and she said, people keep telling me to pull myself up by my bootstraps, <laughs> but I'm wearing flip-flops. And uh, <laughs> I thought yes. that was a wonderful description. There's only yeah. so much you can do, and the more depressed you are, the less you can do. Mm. So push yourself to do as much as you can do, and recognize your limits, and don't allow yourself to feel pressed to do things that you actually can't do. And don't, for heaven's sake, sit around feeling guilty and thinking, oh, if I only worked harder at this, I would be all right. No, if you work harder at it, you still wouldn't be all right, um, probably. Work as hard as you can and then allow for the reality that this is a really terrible, serious, life-threatening condition and that people struggle with it and die from it all the time and that you are not able through the exercise of conscious will to achieve perfect control. Mm. And likewise, then, how, sh how hard should others push? You know, you have a, a, a kid or a, a spouse who's in bed who can't get themselves out of bed because of their depression. How hard they sh should they be pushing? I always say that if you love someone who's depressed, sometimes you can sit and talk to them about it. And sometimes they can't deal with a conversation and you can sit and just be next to them while they're dealing with it. And sometimes they can't stand having you in the room because they find all human interaction so stressful and you have to go sit outside the door. But don't go any farther away than that. Mm -hmm. Depression is a degree of a disease of loneliness and people who are depressed um, experience intense loneliness. And even if they seem to be pushing you away, the more that loneliness becomes a reality, the worse their situation is going to get. Mm. And does your partner and your kids, do they understand what you've been through in that respect and, and when you do relapse, uh, what to do? My partner understands it very well. My kids, as I've said, are little. Right. They know that I've suffered from depression. They know that I take medication for it. So you've it. talked to them about that? Um, uh, I've talked to them about it, yes. And also, if you've written books about depression, sure. the news reaches them, <laughs> whether you discuss it directly or not. Mm. But I try very, very hard to protect them from knowing when I'm actually going through a depression. Mm. I don't know. I think they probably pick up on some of it. But I push them as hard as I can not to... Uh, not to be swallowed uh, by my depression. Um. I did. I have a, a six-year-old. Um, my oldest is six. And it's one of my great fears that I still haven't fully um, uh, resolved yet uh, is that someday he's going to see my TED Talk. I talk about trying to kill myself uh, a bunch of times. It's been seen by millions of people. Uh, and I have no idea how I'm going to talk to him about that yet. And this is what I do for a living. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I would tell you that by the time he's 12, he may not have seen the TED Talk, but he will have picked up on what it is that you do. Mm. To some extent, he will have picked up on the fact that you are faced with these terrible difficulties and you somehow triumphed over them. Mm. And that's actually going to be a happy thing for him to understand. Mm. But he's going to wonder whether he'll develop the same conditions. My hope is that the extreme openness that I've had and that you've had will ultimately allow our children to understand that this is not something that's so shameful you can't talk about it. Right. But rather that their scope to say, I think I feel some of those things too. Yeah. Now you've talked about, uh, I, I can't recall which of your books it was, but this idea of um, horizontal versus vertical uh, identity transmission between parents and their kids. Um, what if it turns out your kid doesn't follow all of these grand designs that you have for them and he somehow ends up being different from you? Well, that was the sort of central um, question of Far From the Tree, mm -hmm. uh, which was the book in which I looked at families of people with deafness and dwarfism and Down syndrome and autism and schizophrenia and multiple right. severe disabilities mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And uh, I also looked at prodigies because I think even a positive difference from families can be extremely stressful. 
Um, and I framed it with the story of my experience as the gay child of straight parents. Mm. And in all of those categories, the general rule that some of these things are transmissible from generation to generation, but in general, you know, deaf children are born to hearing parents, dwarves are born to parents of average height, um, uh, people with autism are born to non-autistic parents, and so on and so forth. So I wanted to look at how families respond to those profound and fundamental differences. What I found over time is that the families often are traumatized by having a child who is different and then they actually engage with that child and uh, they bit by bit learn about the child's form of difference and ultimately find acceptance and in some cases even celebration of the way that their children are. Right. So that could be then a roadmap of sorts for uh, parents who are dealing with kids who are depressed or suicidal or, or any number of other conditions as well. Absolutely. So parents who are dealing with children who have got major mental illnesses of any kind, including depression and including suicidality, um, should understand who their kids are and should not keep thinking, but you're supposed to be exactly like me and I didn't have that problem, I had some other problems instead. Um, and the important thing to do is to rise to the occasion of who your child is. I mean, the task of parenthood altogether is, I think, divided between the obligation to change your children. You have to change your children, not changing them is neglect. You have to teach them um, some manners. You have to give them a moral compass. You have to give them an education. It's your obligation to change your children. And it's your obligation to accept your children for who they are and to tell your children that they're wonderful even if they have characteristics that the larger society throws into question. And some things obviously need to be changed and some things obviously need to be accepted or celebrated and a great deal falls in that foggy middle. If your child is depressed, you don't want to say to your child, I've been depressed too, but I ultimately found meaning in it. You will too. Perhaps. Don't you worry. You know, you don't want to trivialize what they're going through while if they're going it, through too, yeah. Yeah, those initial episodes. Those episodes are very severe and very overwhelming. Um, but you do want to say to them, there are ways through this and I can help you to find the ways there are through this. And someday perhaps... It'll be something that you talk about with um, a bit more of a smile than you can muster now. Yeah. That idea of, of identity transmission is very closely related, I think, to religion as well. And I've noticed that you've mentioned religion a number of times in talks. Uh, you know, you have some religiously themed art in, in your home, it seems. What role has that played in your own thinking? You're, are you a religious person? Do you have a spirituality? Uh, I'm not a religious person, but I'm a spiritual person, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I hate the hackneyed way that word has been yeah. used, but um, <laughs> I believe that human existence is mysterious. I mm -hmm. believe that, uh, or all existence is mysterious. I believe that science can take us only so far and beyond that point we'll never understand, you know, why people exist and where the sense of morality comes from and why people um, are capable of love and so on and so forth. I think these are things that are unknowable and in many ways are unimaginable um, to us. I find it difficult to believe that whatever force is responsible for all of that particularly cares if you've had water sprinkled over your head as a child or if you um, refuse to eat bacon. I mean, that seems to me um, presumptuous of us to assume that. But I think there's a lot of beauty in religious ritual, um, and uh, I think there's a great deal of meaning in the stories that have accumulated around religion. And so long as you don't take an overly literal um, uh, response, I think there's a great deal to be... Uh, to be learned from religion. And I have met people whose lives were redeemed and whose ability to deal with their difficulty was determined by religion. And I've met people who felt when they became depressed that they had been abandoned by God right. and the um, religious background they had exacerbated their uh, sense of frustration and despair. So I believe right. religion can be very helpful. It can be very harmful. For me, certainly the sense that I had never understood the reason for human existence made it easier for me to think I don't understand the reason for my depression. It all felt like it was on a continuum of inexplicability. So how do you, do you think that people can use their religion rather than be subject to it? Because it does seem to help people scaffold some sort of meaning in their lives, whatever that construct uh, might be. But usually religion seems like it's done to people <laughs> rather than people doing their religion. Right. Well, I think that deep beliefs give a great deal of structure um, to one's experience of religion. And uh, I mean, sorry, that one's experience of religion gives one a great deal of structure in one's life. Mm -hmm. um, and I found that people who don't accept the idea that life is mysterious believe that everything is explicable. And mm -hmm. 
you know, we can talk about the biochemistry for the next two and a half hours, but there is no real explanation for why some people become depressed and why people have these complex experiences. Religion often teaches people to accept that lack of knowing mm. in a way that they otherwise wouldn't, and that can be very valuable. And the ability to tolerate the mysteriousness of your own life and experience is an important ability mm. to have. That was one of my greatest frustrations, I think, as a young man wanting my life to be better, to be perfect, and trying so hard to make it that way, when, again, nobody's life is perfect or, or normal or, or necessarily even great. But that's what caused most of the friction, I think, was this was this grasping at something that probably was unattainable, and then getting depressed when I didn't get it. You know, it's right. that kind of FOMO, fear of missing out, or Instagram culture now. So, you know, do you think that kids growing up now, digital natives who have only ever known this division, I think, between their self that they present on social media versus the one that they feel inside. Is it different uh, for kids now with this added pressure of, of uh, how people see them? Well, rates of depression are going up. So partly they're going up because we diagnose depression more and partly we diagnose depression more because there's more we can do about it. Mm. But I also think rates of depression are going up because of the challenges of modernity. And it's very difficult to point to any particular challenge of modernity and say, yes, that's the whole story. You know, is it social media? Is it um, kids who uh, uh, have been exposed to, um, uh, you know, cell phone waves from early childhood? Is it um, uh, the fact that the planet is overpopulated? Is it the sort of fearfulness of living in um, uh, the face of possible environmental catastrophe? You know, it's a thousand different things that come into, uh, that come into play. Um, but I think that the rates of depression are going up and that there are more children who are depressed. And I also think that that gap that you've alluded to between the way that you present yourself on social media and elsewhere and the reality that you're living has widened. I mean, mm -hmm. people always put on a good face and presented themselves as feeling better than they feel. But it's now widened. And furthermore, there is a kind of ostentation of everyone else's um, joy and satisfaction that comes through social media that um, enforces your sense of being inferior to the people whose accounts you're following um, or to your Facebook friends. So, and then the manipulation of that ima those images as well in terms of actually making them literally not even real. <laughs> right. Right. And everybody, even if they themselves are putting out Facebook images that are not real to their lives, everybody at least momentarily thinks, oh, but the Facebook images that I'm seeing are real to somebody else's life. And I think people live by comparison. You know, there was a study a while ago that said that while um, uh, people below the poverty level had extremely difficult lives, once you got above a certain income, and I can't remember what it was, that basically how good you felt about yourself had less to do with how much money you had than by how much money you had in relationship to um, the people around you. Mm -hmm. So you could be just middle class, but if you were surrounded by people who were not doing as well as you were, you tended to feel rather smug. And you could be a multimillionaire, but if you were surrounded by billionaires, you tended to feel anxious and inferior. Mm -hmm. And I think in a strange way, there's a sense of richness that gets conveyed by people who are making social media posts that's of a very different order from um, uh, the richness they actually have, and that people compare their authentic selves to the image of someone else, and that's mm -hmm. never a fair comparison. It seems like people are so damn insistent on being unhappy uh, that there's all kinds of things out there that there's almost this gravity that's always pushing down on us that'll make us unhappy unless we fight back against it. And, and maybe that's just my worldview because that's all I've known. Right. <laughs> but, well, anyway, I, I uh, you know, I, I want to thank you for um, everything that you've done so far. What do you have coming up? Are you working on anything now to look forward to? I'm working on a book that's about how families um, have expanded. The idea of family has expanded over the last 50 years, mm -hmm. looking at families... Um, uh, for divorce and step families, at interfaith and interracial families, at assisted reproduction, at um, uh, at single parents by choice or otherwise, at um, adoption and foster care and gay families and multi-parent families and paid child care and so-called child-free families, trying to argue that the definition of family has undergone a radical transformation in the last 50 years, and our vocabulary for talking about family is still restricted to seven words, mother, father, sister, brother, aunt, uncle, cousin, with a variety of suffixes and prefixes that get attached to them, and that we need to open up to a bigger vocabulary in order to describe the experience of families, and we need to stop 
judging families by the extent to which they conform to what we see as an ideal model of a single race, heteronormative family, um, often living in some um, dream version of the suburbs by saying that these different kinds of family are equal, but they are not equivalent. In mm -hmm. other words, that any of them can succeed or fail, um, but that they're not identical and that in our valid attempt to assert their equality, we have too often asserted a false equivalence among them. Now that you've achieved all the things that the young Andrew Solomon thought he needed to be happy, um, are you happy? Yes. I mean, as I said, I had a severe depression um, a year and a half mm -hmm. ago, and I was very unhappy for a while. So it's not that I feel happy all the time sure. um, by any means. Um, but, you know, I feel my my marriage has been enormously stabilizing. I love being a parent and love the ages my children are now. I'm slightly terrified of the ages they will soon become, but I've loved it so far. Um, and uh, I feel my work has reached an audience of people who have been responsive to it. They write to me on my website at andrewsolomon.com, and uh, I find those responses very meaningful. So, you know, I'm not completely happy and completely content, and life feels fragile, and I see flaws and problems all the time, and I have an aging father, and it's been difficult to see that. But essentially, I would say things have worked out better than I would have imagined possible. That's good enough for now. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew Solomon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. That's it. That's my conversation with Andrew Solomon, the writer on, on politics, culture, psychology, LGBT issues, mental health, uh, just about everything else. Uh, he, he, he was so gracious and uh, so well connected into the conversation as we spoke that he was just extraordinary for me. I wanted to talk to him forever, but of course I couldn't do that. So I want to thank Andrew for uh, being so accommodating, for coming on So-Called Normal, for inviting me into his home uh, to speak with him. Go check out his TED Talks, of course, the three of them uh, that I mentioned that, that he's been so um, effective at communicating the ideas that we all talk about in, in mental health in particular, love no matter what, depression, the secret we share, and how the worst moments in our lives make us who we are. His books, I mentioned Far From the Tree uh, a number of times already because it's just such a great one. So look up that one for sure. Uh, but also look up his uh, Netflix adaptation uh, of Far From the Tree, too. I think that that one was a, a really well done and, and such an engaging watch, too. Going way back to his other ones, you know, The, the Noonday Demon, An Atlas of Depression, Stone Boat, uh, Boat was fantastic. The Reckoning uh, was a good one. He, he's, he's just such a, a fascinating figure. So anyway, I'm gushing about Andrew Solomon. So let's get on with it here. Go check out all of his work and you'll fall in love with him as much as I have as an intellectual and as an advocate. Uh, while you're on the internet doing all these other things, head over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe to the show, leave us a star rating, leave us some comments on the bottom. I read them all and I love them all. Uh, so thank you for doing that. If you don't have Apple Podcasts, then that's okay. We can get us just about anywhere. We're on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts. These go up on YouTube. They're on Deezer. They're everywhere else. So wherever you get your podcasts. Go on there and subscribe to it. Leave us a rating and share, 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 share everywhere. And you can tag me on social media when you do that, too. At Mark Hennick, that's at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K on Twitter, Facebook, uh, YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, everywhere else. I think I'm everywhere. Uh, you can also head over to markhennick.com uh, and look at some of the more uh, some of the other stuff that I do in terms of speaking and writing, advocacy and media work. Uh, and you can send me a, a message through there if you like to. I respond to as many as I can. I think that's it uh, for our conversation today. Uh, I want to thank uh, Entertainment One and the team here, Kimberly and Adrian and everybody else, uh, and my editor Dave who assembles the shows. Uh, none of this would be possible without their hard work. So uh, thank you all for listening, uh, and we'll talk to you again next week. 